0: good, boys and girls? Two-footed podcast on St. Patrick's Day, the 17th of March. It is a Thursday and Liverpool defeated Arsenal last night to give me a very happy evening. We are brought to you, as always, by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network will allow you to go online, change your location, access things that you're normally geo-blocked from, such as BBC iPlayer, ITV Hub, American Netflix, Hulu, whatever it is you want to get access to, a Liberty Shield VPN will get you there, while also keeping your data safe. Check out libertyshield.com, use the code ROUTER50 to get your router half price. That's libertyshield.com, ROUTER50 for 50% off on your router. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and finally do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 to get 10% off at checkout. Right folks, like I mentioned, Liverpool defeated Arsenal last night in the Premier League. I've done a bit more of a Extended analysis of it last night on post-match Raw on Anfield Index Pro and today on the Daily Red on Anfield Index. So you can listen to them there if you want. However, I'll just go quickly through it. Arsenal played about as well as they're capable of in the first half and didn't really cause Liverpool any trouble. Martinelli was dangerous but didn't create anything. They had no shots on target. They didn't really trouble Allison Becker. In any way, shape, or form, Andy Robertson locked down Bakayo Saka. Lacazette showed some good movement, some good link play, but didn't really trouble, trouble Van Dyke or Matip. Liverpool were a little bit sloppy in possession, and maybe that gave the impression that Arsenal were on top, but in truth, Liverpool had more of the ball, more shots on target, the two best chances of the half, and more corners. Therefore, The game was very, very even while Liverpool were sloppy and not really at the races. Arsenal played as well as they could and never really landed any sort of blow. In the second half, Liverpool did what they do. They turned it up for 15 minutes, punched Arsenal in the face and Arsenal rolled over and had a bit of a cry for themselves. Diogo Jota made it one on 54 minutes. Great ball by Thiago. From a narrow angle, Jota beats Aaron Ramsdale at his near post. This is the type of thing that I talk about with Aaron Ramsdale. He makes saves for TV cameras. He makes simple saves look world-class. But the basic fundamentals just aren't there with him. He's got really poor footwork. He's always either on his heels or bouncing. He never has himself set to face a shot. And... He really should do better with this, but it's a great finish by Jota. Eight minutes later, Bobby Firmino on off the bench for Jota makes it two. great work by Andy Robertson to rob the ball off Bakayo Saka. Drives into the box, Arsenal don't get close to him, plays it across. Firmino with a lovely run, unmarked, taps it home. And that's it, that's it, game over. Arsenal basically gave up at that point. They brought off Odegaard for Smith Road, they brought off Saka. For Pepe, like for like changes, changes, nothing of, of any kind of no, of making the team worse overall, even though I, I love Smith Rowe. Sack it to Pepe is a downgrade. And I like Pepe, but that's a downgrade. Arsenal's only chances in the game. Odegaard had the best chance. Played in by Tiago with a sloppy pass. 1v1 against Alisson, and Alisson shows what a great goalkeeper does. Doesn't commit himself, holds his nerve, forces Odegaard to make the decision. Odegaard panics and tries to blast it. Alisson makes the save, and Liverpool get away with it. Then they went down the field and scored their first and then their second. And the only chance Arsenal created for themselves in the entire game was Martinelli in the 87th minute, and that was it. That was it. And like I've said all season, Arsenal are Fugazi. They'll beat the bad teams. They're not even close to the top teams. Not even close to them. They're 18 points behind Liverpool. 19 behind Manchester City. Yes, they have games in hand. Those games in hand, Chelsea away, Spurs away. So the best of luck. Uh, This Arsenal team has a lot to be hopeful for. Saka is going to be a megastar. Martinelli is going to be a megastar. Odegaard is exceptionally good. Smith-Rowe, I think, can be a megastar. I do really like Kieran Tierney. I like Gabriel. I really like Tommy Asu, who missed out last night. But there's still big holes. I mean, you're playing Granite Xhaka. For the love of God, it's 2022 and you're playing Granite Xhaka. Thomas Partey is a good midfielder. He's not good enough to carry Xhaka. Gabriel is a very good centre-back. He's not good enough to carry Ben White. And Ben White makes too many positional errors. And he's just, at times, he just switches off. So if Arsenal want to be serious about becoming a real team, they've got to go in the summer and get a midfielder to play next to to Partey. They've got to get in at least one striker and probably two. I'd be sending Balogun out on loan again because he's not nearly ready for the Premier League. I'd go for a Darwin Nunez and someone like Joe Pedro from Watford as the second one, someone to develop, someone who could be special. I think those two, or even if Haaland goes to Real Madrid, I'd seriously be trying to get Benzema. Get yourself Benzema and Joe Pedro. Benzema will give you two really good years. You develop Joe Pedro and then you see what you have from there. Uh, Calvin Phillips, stands out as a potential choice in midfield. And not only will he give them what they need on the pitch, he'll give them that leadership as well. This Arsenal team are soft and they don't know how to react when they go behind. They're always very, very wobbly when a team scores against them. And someone like Calvin Phillips, who's a proper fighter, who wants a scrap, who's not afraid to dig people out, who's not afraid to grab hold of people, and give them a shake. That's where they need to look, and then they need depth everywhere. They need a better backup right back. They need depth at centre back. Now Saliba coming back will help, and I think he actually should become the starter. He's been brilliant for Marseille. Was really good for Nice last year. That puts White as the third centre back. You still need one more. You still need another centre back. They, I think they have a backup goalkeeper coming in from America because Leno will leave. But they need depth in midfield. Because you're gonna, you've got to sell Jack at this point. Then, so you, you'd only have El Neni, I suppose, behind Partey and whoever else you buy. So you need two midfielders. You need probably a backup left winger, or a backup ten, or someone who can do both. A bit like Smith Rowe. Another one like that. Now, maybe they'll see Charlie Patino as the backup ten, and Smith Rowe as sort of the third winger, and they can rotate. Maybe that's what they'll do. But Arsenal need a lot this summer. They need a lot. It's one thing being where they are when you play one game a week and you've got all week to prepare. But when you throw in European football, like all the other clubs around them have had at different points this season, Spurs, well, except for Wolves, Spurs had it, United had it, West Ham still have it, Liverpool have it, Chelsea have it, and City have it. Arsenal haven't had to deal with that. They haven't had any major injuries bar Tommy Yasu. They've had their full squad available. Let's see you do it when you're playing in Europe as well, because it's much, much harder, much, much harder. You're going to need a lot more quality players. Arteta got a little bit exposed last night, doesn't have any sort of plan B. His in-game adjustments are non-existent. He has a way he wants Arsenal to play. He sets them up in that way and that's it. That's it. He washes his hands and the players go and do their thing. But he can't adapt in-game. He can't react to the other team scoring. Watch him last night when Liverpool scored. He looked completely clueless. It was that, oh no, now what do I do moment. And I'm not sure who's more deluded, whether it's Arteta or the Arsenal fan base. But for him to come out and say they were the better team in the middle of the pitch simply isn't true. If that was true, Arsenal would have had more of the ball. Arsenal played the game where Liverpool wanted them to play the game. And then Liverpool were just much better in both boxes. But the idea that his midfield outplayed Liverpool's is fanciful stuff. Arsenal fans told me there was an incoming Arteta Masterclass Not at all. Got his bottom smacked by a German master once again. Arsenal fans want you to believe today that they outplayed Liverpool. Liverpool had more of the ball. Liverpool had more shots on target. Same amount of shots in total. Liverpool created five of the seven big chances. Arsenal had two of the biggest of the seven big chances in the game. One of them was gifted to them. One of them was just handed to them by Thiago. They missed both. Liverpool at six corners, Arsenal at one. I don't really know where the idea that Arsenal outplayed Liverpool would come from. In what area did you outplay Liverpool? Did you run a lot? Congratulations, you're meant to run a lot. The only thing Arsenal really did was overload on one side and then switch the play to the other and try and isolate Martinelli against Trent or Saka against Robertson. Robertson put Saka in his pocket Mark Nelly had a good game, but he didn't create anything. He had one decent chance in the game. He didn't score. He didn't, didn't really do anything other than run a lot. So where, where was the outplaying here exactly? Strange. Very, very strange. Liverpool are now second. or well, Liverpool were second. They're now one point behind Manchester City. Same number of games played. Liverpool five better off. In the goal difference column, they've scored seven more, conceded two more. Liverpool play Watford next. City play Burnley. Liverpool's game is first. So if Liverpool win, they will go top of the table. And that will put the pressure on City going into that Burnley game. Then the two sides face each other. And that could be the game that defines the title race. But as I've said before, you look at the fixtures after that. City do have some difficult games. They've got Wolves away and West Ham away. Potential slip-ups there. Liverpool have some difficult games as well, but theirs are mostly at home. They get United at home. They get Everton at home. They get Tottenham at home, and they get Wolves at home. Aston Villa away, potentially a slippy one. No pun intended there, by the way. Um, but Liverpool's run-in is more favourable than City's because while United and Everton are potentially tricky, the reality of it is that neither of them are any good and Liverpool should comfortably beat both. Tottenham at home, you fancy Liverpool. Wolves at home, you fancy Liverpool. City have Wolves away, West Ham away. That's more tricky. In the other game last night, Spurs 2 Brighton nil, and really and truly, this could have been five or six. Brighton had a lot of shots, none on target. Not one, they had 15 shots in the game, zero on target. Spurs had 17 shots, seven on target. Kane should have scored when he blocked the clearance of uh, Bob Sanchez, but then he put a shot wide. Kulisewski should have scored when sent through 1v1. Spurs went one up through Romero. It's a Kulisevsky shot that hit Romero. Romero didn't know anything about it, but the goal's been given to Romero. Uh, Kane made it two on 57. And then Regulon should have scored on, I think it was like 64, 65. Kane played him through with a brilliant pass and Reguilon should score. But Spurs were very, very good last night. A very, very dominant performance. Uh, I thought Bentoncourt again Tremendous in midfield. He's just such a difference maker for them. Romero starting to look better and better by the game. You'd still have doubts over Dyer and Davies. you still have doubts over Matt Doherty. But the Spurs team might just start coming together. Now, I've said that 14 different times this season and 14 different times they've let me down. So, you know, no point getting too excited. But they are now level on points. West Ham, two points behind United with a game in hand on both of those clubs. They're three behind Arsenal. Arsenal have a game in hand. That's the Chelsea away game. So if Arsenal lose to Chelsea and then Tottenham beat Arsenal, which is the other game that those two have below the rest, Tottenham would find themselves potentially uh, with the right goal difference swing in the top four. There are still five clubs in that mix, very much in that mix. People want to point to Arsenal's games in hand, and that's the reason they're going to get across the line. Those games in hand are horrible. And Arsenal have the toughest run in of anybody. They've still got to play United. They've still got to play West Ham. They've got Villa this weekend, which is going to be a very difficult game. Tottenham, of course, have West Ham. This Sunday, that's the game of the weekend in the Premier League. And that's going to be a very difficult game. But if Tottenham get the win there, that's a massive, massive victory. That puts them three ahead of West Ham, still with a game in hand. And we'll see, obviously, what happens with Arsenal against Villa. But it could put Spurs very much in the driving seat. United don't play this weekend. Uh, their game is postponed because it was meant to be Liverpool but obviously FA Cup has caused that one to be uh, rearranged Spurs were really good last night Brighton played better than they have but it's still six defeats in a row they are now 13th in the league their goal difference is now minus 10 they've only conceded 36 all season but they've only scored 26 and I've said it all year long That's where their biggest problem is. Like, Wolves have now scored more goals than Brighton. Wolves, who were awful in front of goal for the majority of this season. Wolves have now scored more goals than Brighton. The only team scoring less goals, Burnley and Norwich, the bottom two. Funnily enough, Burnley have scored four goals less, conceded two more. Their goal difference is only six worse. Than Brightons, yet they have 12 points less. It's all about when you score them and when you can see them, I suppose. Um, yeah, big, big win for Tottenham last night, keeps them in the mix. We've won game in the Premier League tonight. That is Everton at home to Newcastle. Newcastle, obviously, one of the most informed teams in the Premier League. They did lose at the weekend, but it was against Chelsea, and in truth, they deserve something from the game. They were badly done by, by the referee and the uh, the VAR. Everton just look hope, uh, hopeless. They've lost four of the last five. They've only won two games since September. They beat Arsenal and they beat Leeds and everybody beats Leeds. So I, I think you have to fancy Newcastle coming into this game tonight. I really do. I think tune the way they're playing, the confidence that they have in themselves, in the manager, in trusting the process, trusting what they've been asked to do. Now, Newcastle have some injury issues. John Joe Shelby's a doubt, but they do have Bruno Gomerish, who's a f- far better player. Uh, Joe Willock should be okay, says Eddie Howe. He had an illness, but he's back in training. Jolington is touch and go. So that could be a blow if he's out. Still no Trippier, obviously, still no Wilson. Hayden and Lewis won't play again this season. For Everton, no Yerry Mina. He's weeks away. Fabian Delph, weeks away. John Joe Kenny is suspended. Calvert Lewin is a major doubt. He's back in training, but light training. So he might make the bench. We'll wait and see. Uh Tom Davies out for the season. Mina and Calvert-Lewin missing means they're lost at both ends of the pitch. I think Newcastle will win this game. I think Newcastle win that game. And that's a big blow for Everton because they need to start picking up points. And you go back six, seven weeks, Everton were in the mire, but you would have been looking at this with Newcastle, who at the time were in the bottom three and saying, that's a game Everton should win, not now. Not no, things have turned around drastically. Everton, kind of like Arsenal at the top, their quote-unquote saving grace has allegedly been, well, they've got games in hand. But games in hand are no use if you can't beat anybody. And this was one of the games in hand. Another one of them is Burnley. So it doesn't get easy for them. It really doesn't get easy for them. I'll go for the Newcastle win, 2-0. 2-0, and I think Goodison gets really angsty tonight. Uh, we have Europa League football tonight. Last night we had Champions League football, two games, one massive shock, Juventus nil, Villarreal three. Juventus dominated this game for 75 minutes. And then Villarreal just decided to turn it on. Gerard Moreno put them one up on 78 with a penalty. Pau Torres made a 2 on 85. And Arnaud Denjuma made a 3 on 92 with a penalty as Juve lost the run of themselves. When I saw the Juve team and saw that Allegri was playing Danilo in a back three, I immediately had massive concerns When I saw Dybala's name on the bench, I had massive concerns. I don't know what you're doing starting Alvaro Morata at this point in a major Champions League game. I really don't. Huge credit to Villarreal. Really compact, really disciplined. There's a lot of good players in that team. Like you start looking at that Villarreal team, there's so much talent there. There's a lot of cast offs as well, though. You know, Aurier. Capoue, Parejo, La Celso, Albiol. These guys were cast aside by other clubs. Villarreal picked them up, get them in the system, and all of a sudden it's working. You've know, you got uh, Francis Cockeying coming on, former Arsenal, was at Valencia. Valencia gave up on him, basically gave him away. He's playing very well. You've got Juan Voigt on the bench. Spurs gave up on him. He's been great since going to Villarreal. There's a lot of talent there as well. Chuck Ways, he can't even get in the team. He's an outstanding young player. But Jeremy Pino's very good. Dan Juma's quite good. Laselso's a tremendous player. I mean, we're, we're seeing more and more white Spurs bottom, and then they just never used him properly. Um, so, Juve out. Juve out of the Champions League. And uh, look, they weren't going to win it. They're not good enough to win it. They're in all likelihood going to finish fourth in Serie A this season. They're not the Juve of past years, but you still expected them to beat Villarreal. That was probably the easiest draw they could have got, and they've absolutely bottled it at home. 4-1 aggregate win for Villarreal. And, you know, with respect, Villarreal will now be one of the teams that the other major clubs will start to look for and think, oh, we'd like them in the next round. Uh, Chelsea 2, Lille 1 Chelsea threw 4-1 uh, four, four, on aggregate I should say um, Burak Yilmaz put Lille 1-up on 38 minutes from the penalty spot Christian Pulisic equalised just before half-time and then asked quite to, to put it beyond doubt on 71 Chelsea threw fairly comfortable uh, they had a little bit of a shock when Lille went 1-up but they came back into it and then they managed the game second half. So we are set for the Champions League. We know what eight teams will be there and the draw will be tomorrow. I think most of the top sides, those being Liverpool, Manchester City, Bayern Munich, Real Madrid, Chelsea, they'll be looking at Benfica. They'll be looking at... Villarreal and thinking they're the ones we want. Atletico Madrid won't care who they play because they'll be going to do what they always do and they'll just turn up and try and spoil whatever game they're involved in. But that's your your last eight. Chelsea, Liverpool, Man City, Bayern Munich, Benfica, Atletico Madrid, Real Madrid and Villarreal. I think there's five teams who can legitimately win the competition. The three English clubs, Bayern and Real but I think Liverpool City and Bayern are the three best teams in the competition Chelsea are the reigning champions Tuchel's football translates very well to this competition Real there's just so much experience there a lot of that squad have won this competition four times so it's very hard to overlook them they will be a threat to anybody they play. We saw what they can do when they turn it on, like against PSG. But at the same time, you can catch them flat, and maybe they'll find their way out. With Bayern, they're allowing Dosky injury from playing Chupamoteng up front. It's shaping up to be good competition, though. The draw will be tomorrow, and then the first legs, the 5th and 6th of April with the second legs a week later. Europa League tonight, we have seven games because Spartak were thrown out of the competition and Leipzig were given a bye. Uh, Galatasaray will host Barcelona. That's nil-nil from the first leg. Galatasaray having a woeful season. They're like 10th in Turkey. So this is their only shot at silverware in European football next season. Um, Barca obviously have, have not returned to form. They've, They've improved massively under Javi. Uh, the third in the league, looking good value for Champions League spot. Bit surprising, uh, but certainly riding a high at the moment. Bigger test to come for them though. Um, the tie of the round, I think, is Leverkusen. Atlanta. Atlanta won the first leg three two in Bergamo. Leverkusen, I think, will be confident that they can overturn it. But obviously Florian Vert's out with the torn ACL is a massive blow. Red Star, Belgrade, host Rangers. Rangers are 3-0 up from the first leg. That's the only one that looks done and dusted. I don't see Rangers, who are pretty good defensively, giving up that lead. That's the only tie I think is done and dusted. Monaco at home to Braga. Braga, they're very consistent. They're fourth in the league pretty much every year. Um, They're a good team. Monaco are a better team, but Monaco have not been consistent this year. 2-0 Braga lead from the first leg. So they do have a big advantage but should be a decent enough game. Those four are on at 5.45. And then there's three late games. So Eintracht Frankfurt are at home to Real Betis. Eintracht are 2-1 up from the first leg. West Ham are at home to Sevilla. Sevilla are 1-up from the first leg. Sevilla will be the, I think, prohibitive favourites to win the competition. But if West Ham can overturn that and get through, There's very little that they'd be scared of. Like, Barcelona obviously come with a big reputation, but this Barcelona team is not one of the great Barcelona teams. Leverkusen and Atalanta are good teams, but are they better than West Ham? I mean, Atalanta probably are at their best. They haven't been at their best. West Ham might have a chance if they can get by Sevilla to go ahead and win this whole thing. Uh, Leon... At home to Porto. Leon won up from the first leg. You'd expect Leon with home advantage to find themselves in the last eight draw when that is made on Friday. We also have Europa Conference League. Again, eight games in this one. Uh, AZ Alkmaar at home to Bodo Glimt. Bodo have a 2-1 lead from the first leg. Wren at home to Leicester. Leicester won the first leg 2-0. Ren are dangerous though. And if Doku is fitting in form, Terrier's fitting in form, Mayer's fitting in form, they can be a problem. I think Suleiman is injured at the moment. He's a big loss for them. But Ren will cause Leicester some trouble. But with a 2 0 lead, it would be quite embarrassing for Leicester to go out. Uh, Copenhagen at home to PSV Eindhoven. This game ended 4 4 in the first leg. And uh, it was absolutely bananas. Copenhagen at home will have the advantage. There's obviously no away goals, so they lose what would have been the old advantage. But home crowd, you'd expect them to have a great opportunity to get through. Uh, Basel at home home to um, Marseille. Marseille 2-1 up from the first leg. And I I expect Marseille to go through. They've got more quality. I think they'll be able to hold on. Uh, Roma at home to Vietas Arnhem. Roma won the first leg 1-0. I expect Mourinho to be able to see that one out. I think Roma might well be the favourites to win this competition. They just need to get through tonight. Lask, oh sorry, I should have pointed out, the AZ, Rennes, Copenhagen and Basel games are all 5.45 and then the other four are 8pm. So Roma is 8pm, also 8pm Lask versus Slavia Prague. Slavia 4 went up from the first leg. You'd expect that they are through. Uh, Ghent at home to PAOK. Okay, with the 1-0 lead. That one's well-balanced. Should be a decent game. And then you get Feyenoord against Partizan Belgrade. Feyenoord 5-2 up from the first leg. Again, you'd expect them to get through fairly complex. It could be a bad night for Belgrade with Red Star and Partizan looking likely to go out of the respective European competitions. I will take a break here. And when we come back, we have some listeners' questions uh, to do, which are nice. So I'll see you in a sec. Right, welcome back. So, uh, we'll do the news quickly and then we will jump into the listeners' questions before wrapping up with the gossip. Um, Paul Pogba has revealed that his house was burgled while he was playing against Atletico Madrid. Uh, That's really not not good. Really not good at all. Our family's worst nightmare was realised when our home was broken into while our babies were sleeping in the bedroom. That is horrific. The family's nanny was at home at the time and Pogba has offered a reward to anyone who has a clue to help us. Pogba has two kids aged three and one. Maybe that explains why he hasn't been playing well. Maybe he's just been stressed and not sleeping because of his kids. Bill Shankly used to say, if, you, if a player has a kid, just write him off for a year. But that's horrendous. Nobody's personal space and nobody's safe place, which is what your home should be. Should ever be violated like that. Absolute scumbags. Uh, this is the second time since Christmas that a United players had his home broken into. Victor Lindelof and his family, uh, their house broke into in January. We had Joe Canseo's house broken into around Christmas. Uh, he tried to fight them off and got hurt doing so. People are scum. People are absolute scum. I hope Pogba gets whatever was stolen back, and I hope his family are are safe and okay. Um, Really good story on the BBC website about David Moyes and West Ham and the turnaround that's taken place there. So do read that one. It's very, very good. Uh, Thomas Tuchel says he wants Chelsea to be the team nobody wants to play in the last day. I, I do think they are that. I think they've replaced Atletico Madrid as that. I don't think you're necessarily scared of them. You just don't want to play them because it'll be a horrible, horrible game. They'll make it very, very difficult. Uh, Leicester City Council have approved a statue at the King Power of the former Leicester chairman, uh, Vici. I I won't try and pronounce his surname because I will butcher it. He's obviously the gentleman who died in the helicopter crash a few years back, and they are making a permanent and fitting tribute to him by building a statue, which is, Outstanding, absolutely outstanding, and right because if it wasn't for him, that club would probably be in the championship struggling away. His arrival at Leicester is probably the biggest moment in the history of that club since the foundation. So, yeah, it's absolutely right that he get a statue, and it looks like it's been placed outside next to the main road, which is great because you know it shouldn't just be. For the club, for the fans, it should be for the city because he, he invested a lot of money in the city as well, from what I understand, and has played a big part in, in the city's uh, resurgence or growth or whatever way you want to put it. Uh, so that's brilliant to see, brilliant to see. um Kurt Zuma is to be prosecuted by the RSPCA. I wasn't aware it was his brother who took the video of him kicking the cat and hitting the cat. Uh, I'd imagine that relationship's probably a bit frosty now, but that is the right thing to do. He should be prosecuted for what he did. Uh, Breaking news as we speak, Garrett Southgate has announced the England squad. So let's go through this. Let's look at the goalkeepers first. Uh, Jordan Pickford having a dreadful season, but in the England squad nonetheless. Uh, Nick Pope, he's been better over the last 10 games, but generally hasn't had a particularly good season. And Aaron Ramsdale, who's had the best season of the lot. Nick Pope is, I believe, the best goalkeeper of the lot. But Ramsdale is the one currently most deserving of jersey, despite not being very good. Uh, Defenders. Trent Alexander-Arnold. That's an obvious. Connor Cody. I mean, you know what? Wolves' defensive record is good this season. It's fine. Mark Gwehi, called up for the first time. He has been tremendous for Crystal Palace, developed a very good partnership with Anderson at centre-back, developed a good understanding with Tyreek Mitchell as left-back. He's emerged as a leader, become the captain of the team in recent weeks. Chelsea made a big mistake selling him. I think that's a great call-up. Reese James, who's injured, has been called up. Uh, Harry Maguire having a dreadful season. Luke Shaw having a dreadful season. Tyron Mings having a dreadful season. John Stones can't get in the City team, but he's in the England squad. Ben White called up. Okay. Uh, midfielders, Jude Bellingham, obvious. Connor Gallagher, that's good to see that he keeps his place in the squad. Jordan Henderson having a dreadful season. Mason Mount. Declan Rice, they're obvious ones. And James Ward prowse that's an obvious one. Uh, in attack, he's gone Tammy Abraham. I think that's deserved. Tammy's having a very good season with Roma. Uh, I would ask why his colleague, Ficayo Tomore, who's also having a very good season in Syria, uh, has been one of the better central defenders in Syria and whose team currently sit three points clear at the top of the division. I'd wonder why he's not in the squad. Um, Phil Foden, absolutely fair. Jack Grealish having a dreadful season. Harry Kane was obviously going to be in the squad. He is the captain, but, you know. Bakayo Saka, deserving. Emile Smith-Rowe can't get in the Arsenal team, and I love Emile Smith-Rowe, but can't get in the Arsenal team. He's in the England squad. And Raheem Sterling, which is an obvious one. I would raise big question marks over Grealish, Henderson, Stones, Shaw, Mings and Maguire in that squad and Pickford but you don't really have an option because there's no other English goalkeeper playing in the Premier League at a high level you could look at Sam Johnson in the Championship maybe but even he's not having a particularly good time of things um, as ever, Garrett Southgate has picked largely from the big clubs and largely from the players that he prefers you you understand the Trippier would be in that squad if he was fit, um, no matter what. I I don't understand why is not in the squad. Ezri Konza should have been in the squad for the last 18 months. This is probably the first time it's been fair enough to leave him out, but he's still more deserving than Maguire, Mings, or Stones. Henderson, if Calvin Phillips was fit, I wonder. I wonder who drops out. It probably would be Gallagher, but it should be Hemus. He has been really poor this season. He was really poor again last night. And that's it. That is the England squad. Well done, Mister Southgate. Um, you are, you are what I've said you are. Uh, moving on, we have listeners' questions. Not many of them today, thank you enough because I got through most of them on Tuesday. So we'll get these done nice and quick. Um, this is from uh, Mikhail Campbell. What's your ideal Champions League draw? Would you like Liverpool to face Real Madrid now? Because we owe them for the defeat in the 2018 final and the defeat last season. Um, I mean, I would prefer Benfica or Villarreal, if I'm being honest. I would prefer Benfica or Villarreal. I would rather play Real Madrid than either of the other English teams. I would rather play Real than Bayern. Real are better than Atleti, but I still think I'd rather play Real. Atleti are just a pain in the backside. My preferred draw would probably be Benfica in some part because I want to see Klopp fall in love with Darwin Nunes. Uh, but no, I think I would say Benfica or Real, Then maybe... Then either of the Madrid clubs. But there is a gulf between Benfica, Real, Benfica Real, and the two Madrid teams. I would rather avoid the other two English teams and Bayern at this point. I'd rather get them at the semi-final stage. Um... Right. Isaac Gilding, what should Rashford do to get his mojo back? Don't think his career is in danger yet, but it's a slippery slope at United, as we've seen before. I agree. It is a slippery slope. And Marcus Rashford, who I think is a tremendous player and an even better human being, is having a very poor season. And you can tell it's getting to him. Now, he's been left out of the England squad, as has Jadon Sancho. Understandable, neither of them playing well this year. But at the same time, it's another blow to Rashford's confidence that he's been left out of the squad. Now, he is 24. He's under contract until next June. United have an option to extend it a further year. So United can keep him till 2024. At which case he's he's 27. He can't afford, or almost 27, he'd be 27 the October of that year. Rashford can't afford to just hang about at United for another couple of years if this is going to be what he is there. He needs to go somewhere else and kickstart his career. There is one interesting comparison I'll draw here. You look at Marcus Rashford, over the course of his career. And he's played a lot of football. He's played an awful lot of football for someone so young. So you go back to, was it the 15, 16 season he made his debut? Uh, that season, all told, including Youth Club and Premier League 2 games, he played 2,000 minutes. That's as an 18, 19-year-old. Was Actually, that's a 17, 18-year-old Rashford. Then the following year, he plays three thousand minutes, all at senior level. The following season, he's twenty six hundred minutes. Then in eighteen nineteen, he's 3,300 minutes, give or take. Nineteen twenty, he's a thirty five hundred minutes. Last season, remember, last season a lot of injuries playing with injections constantly, he played 4,146 minutes across all competitions. You then factor in with the England national team, he's already played 2,167 minutes. Marcus Rashford has played a lot of football. A lot of football already in such a young career. And he's played at a very high level. And sometimes you see with young players where they have this young early career explosion, and then around 24 start to drop off. And the, the example I would use that's probably most prevalent is Delhi Ali. And now Delhi was actually a little bit younger when his drop off started. He was probably 22, 23, but he'd played a he played, he came through earlier, remember, than Rashford he came through like 15, 16 with MK Dons. But he had played around the same type of minutes when things started to go really poorly for him. And Delhi hasn't been able to resurrect it since probably 2019. And like M- Marcus Rashford, he became an integral part of the England squad very early, a lot of burden on his shoulders. And a lot was expected of him. And I would say, if we take Rashford's, the beginning point of his dip as the beginning of this season, well, Delhi is 18 months older. If we go back 18 months, you're probably in around the same point where Delhi noticeably started to drop off. Like he'd had bouts of poor form before that, but he'd always... Kind of bounce back from it and have five or six good games, and he'd be poor again, and he'd bounce back again. I think some of these young players at big clubs like United, like Spurs, are getting played far too early and playing far too much too early. Now, Delhi's moved on to Everton, but that move has come quite late when you know a lot of people were calling for him to leave Spurs a year ago. I think if, if Rashford ends up staying United through the end of this contract, I do genuinely think that might be Marcus Rashford done as a top-level player. He could still be a good player, but as you know, a player for a club that wants to win major honours, no more than a squad player at that point. Whereas he looked like the type of guy that could be a starting player for a title-winning team. Now, in part, in part, it's because he hasn't had good coaches. Played under Mourinho. Mourinho's the best coach he's ever had by a considerable distance. But Mourinho at that point was past his best and is a very defensive minded coach. Then he worked under Ollie, who's a PE teacher, and under Southgate for England, another PE teacher. He's never had that elite level attack minded coach. Ranick is an attack minded coach, but Ranick's not elite. And Ranick's also a part time manager. If Rashford had worked under someone like Klopp or Pep, I think he would be a s- sensational player at this point. I-, I genuinely think he'd be a top 10 player in the league if he played under one of them for three or four years, rather than the collection of dross he's been forced to play under. I think if I'm Marcus Rashford's agent, I'm trying to get him out of the club for next season. Even if it's a loan, even if you can convince United to let him go on loan for a year and then come back. He'll still have a year left on his contract and then they can make a decision whether to sell him or to try and extend him under no circumstances. would I would advise him to extend that contract though. Absolutely not. I think he's got to get himself clear of Manchester United. I think the club is toxic. I think there's, But when we see all the stuff that comes out, like the latest stuff about Bruno Fernandes that Miguel Delaney has put forward. Now, I have no doubt at all that Miguel Delaney has been told that Bruno Fernandes is uncoachable, that he doesn't take tactical instruction on board. Well, I've no doubt he's been told that. I don't for one second believe it to be the truth because I've listened to what his previous managers at Sporting have said, and even Ollie, and all of them Glowed about him but when that type of stuff comes out and and the maguire versus cristiano you know leadership stuff comes out you know it's a toxic environment stuff like that only becomes public knowledge when someone wants it to become public knowledge because as well clued in as delaney and others are they're not on the training ground so they're not seeing it and That type of information doesn't generally get leaked from a well run club. There's conflict at every training ground, every single one of them. Some of it's good conflict, a lot of it's bad conflict, but there's conflict everywhere. You only ever hear about it from dysfunctional clubs. And that's what United are. And you look at the Greenwood situation and what's happened there. You look at the circus around Pogba the last number of years. There's a culture at United of entitlement. And that's been furthered by Cristiano and and Edinson Cavani and how they've behaved and how Bruno now behaves. And I don't think it's a good environment. And I think if I'm Marcus Rashford's agent and I don't know who his agent is, um, it might tell me here. Let's see. Uh, He's represented by family members. He might represent himself, really. Um, I would be strongly advising him to to get away from Manchester United, no matter who the manager is next season. He's not going to be able to fix all the problems in one year and you may well just become a victim of the club's success because you might get shunted out of the way. So I'd be trying to get him out of the club as quickly as possible. I really like Rashford as, as a player and a person and I'd like to see him Go somewhere else. Uh, Tibera Sports Bowl. Um, How do you think City will do after Pep? Who could they target to replace him? That's the first part. And then there's another part. I'll do this part first. So I think City will be fine. They might not be as consistently year on year brilliant, but they'll still win major honours. They'll still compete for everything. They're too well run. Their structure is impeccable. They've got the best people in the right jobs. They hire best in class. Very similar approach to Liverpool. There's nothing done by chance at City. Everything is very measured. Even the deception is very well thought out. So I think City will be okay. Who can replace him? Ten Hag is an obvious name that comes to mind. If he has sense, he would check with City. Check with Pep who he's worked with before and see if that's a possibility that he could go there in 12 months if Pep is to leave. And then he'd wait at Ajax for a year. Ruben Amorim of Sporting is another one I think they should look at. Plays very good football, very good tactical approach, very switched on manager, improves young players. I think he's another one. I know they'd like Nagelsmann, that that's been said publicly by a number of different journalists. Uh, Nagelsmann's probably not leaving Bayern that soon. But if he decides to move on, you know, Nagelsmann would certainly be in the mix. There's no candidate in the Premier League that would be of interest to them. They would love Klopp. They won't get Klopp. They might, the one who might be is Thomas Tuchel. Now, people will look at how Tuchel plays at Chelsea and, and as always, jump the gun and assume he's a defensive manager. Thomas Tuchel's an adaptive manager. He works at what he has, but he wants to play attacking football. He wants to play creative football. He does what he does at Chelsea because that's what the players are suited to. Tuchel is one that could interest him. A lot will depend on what he decides to do at Chelsea. But I think that could be... That job would interest him far more than any nonsense about a Man United job. Because, as I said before, United's the poison chalice. Unless everything changes above you, nothing's changing in the grand scheme of things. So, I, I think they'd look at Tuchel. I think they'll definitely look at Ten Hag. They'll look at Amorim. There's no one else... Really, that stands out for me. There's nobody in La Liga who I would say, you know, go and get him. There's no one else in the Bundesliga outside of Nagelsmann that strikes me as being ready for City. Like, there's a couple of interesting managers there. But there's no one that would be ready to walk into a job like City. To take that job, you're going to have to have been, you know, at a top club in whatever league it is and have a certain approach. In Serie I mean, I'm not a huge fan. He's done really well this season. Simone Zagi could be on a shortlist. I, I doubt it, but he could. does play an attractive brand of football and City do have a squad of players that with one addition maybe two additions with two additions City could adapt really well to what Inzaghi wants Gasparini maybe is an outside shot but does he win like he plays great football, his team are really admirable. You love the way the club is run. That's one ending. I I think it's three. I I well Tuchel is the Tuchel is the outsider because he may well commit to Chelsea long term, depending on who the new owner is. Uh they'll they'll like Nagelsmann but I don't think they get him. I think it comes down to Ten Hag or Amarum. Unless someone else sort of explodes onto the scene in the next 12 months, and even at that, it seems unlikely. Uh, Brendan Rogers obviously will tell you that it's Brendan Rogers, but I would just put him in the bin. Um, if City get Haaland, what moves would the rest of the league need to make to be competitive? Could Liverpool still keep peace if they made the right moves? Um, yeah, absolutely, Liverpool could. The rest, to be competitive... Um, For some, I would say move to Scotland or get relegated. I think then you can be competitive. Um, The the gulf between Liverpool and City and the rest of the league is fairly sizable. Even to Chelsea, it's a decent gap. Now, again, there's a big gap from Chelsea to, say, your Arsenal's, United, Spurs, West Ham and Wolves. There's a gap from great Liverpool City to good Chelsea to mediocre Arsenal through to Wolves. To They're mediocre good, as in they can be good, they can be poor, but they're more often good. The rest of the teams below Wolves are mediocre bad. Sometimes they're good, more often they're bad. Even clubs, I said this. I've said this before. To get from good to great is the biggest jump you can make. To get from bad to good is fairly straightforward. Might only take two, three players. You know, you look at Brighton. Two, three players, they'd be a good team. Striker, better goalkeeper, one more centre back to go with Duncan Webster. Then that's a good team. You get a good goalkeeper. Good center back, Dunk Webster, Lamptey, Cucarella, Basuma, Mwepu, McAllister, Trossard, and a striker. That's a good team. Then you've got Mope and Moder and you know the rest of that squad, and you're fine. That's a good team. Um, the same would go for Aston Villa. You know, you upgrade on Mings, you get a holding midfielder and you upgrade on Danny Ings and all of a sudden you're a good team. You know, you go through any of these teams. Leicester City, you upgrade a centre-back, bring in someone to partner for Fana. You upgrade the manager and you bring in a wide attacker for the right-hand side and all of a sudden you're a good team. Um, You're mediocre good. You're not necessarily good, good like Chelsea, but you're mediocre good and you can develop into good. Arsenal, to get to Chelsea's level, probably needs midfielder, striker. To get to Liverpool City's level, need goalkeeper, centre-back, new manager, midfielder, striker. And then time for Saka, Martinelli, Smithrow, Odegaard and that defence to develop. So the gap from everybody to Liverpool City is... Huge as is Chelsea to get to the same level, one in attack, two in defense. They need three players and three quality players. So Liverpool City are on their own level. Everyone else, City buying Haaland doesn't really change the outlook for them. Liverpool are the only team sort of directly affected because those two teams live on a different level to the rest. So what would Liverpool need to do? Well, if we go player by player, Alisson is better than Ederson. Trent is better than Kyle Walker. Robertson and Canseo are very different players. is a more talented footballer. Robertson's a more effective footballer. Robertson's a lot better defensively. And more effective in attack, if not as talented and whatever. So I would rather have Robertson. Virgil's better than any city centre-back. I think Matip is better than any city centre-back. Now, Ruben Diaz has a reputation as this elite-level centre-back. But for an elite-level centre-back, he spends an awful lot of time lying on the floor. And he did not make any sort of transformative Difference to City's team. They were a very good team before they were, they were a great team before him. And they're a great team with him. He's a, he's a very good centre-back. He's not as good as Joel Matip, in my view. Matip's just better on the ball, better in the air. Diaz is probably... Diaz is a better tackler. Matip's a better 1v1 defender. Matip doesn't get beaten very often 1v1. Diaz does. I think Diaz is... Is good. Diaz is a lot younger as well. Diaz will be a better defender than Matip by the when Diaz is 29, 30. He'll be better than Matip is now, is what I'm trying to say and, and saying badly. But for now, I, I think I'd rather have Matip. But even if you take Diaz, that's one city player out of the back five. I'd rather have Fabinho than Rodri. And I really like Rodri. And maybe in two, three years, he's at the level Fabinho is at now, but he's not there yet. I'm Undoubtedly taking De Bruyne. There's no doubt in my mind you're having him. But I'd want Thiago as the other one. Now they have Gundogan, who I love, but I think Thiago's slightly better. In the front three, I'm taking Salah, but I'm taking Foden and Bernardo Silva if given the given the options. So I've only actually got three City players in my combined 11. Now, again, there's probably some bias in that, and some people will disagree on certain things. But genuinely, I I don't feel like it's all that close in goal at right-back in terms of Van Dijk versus any of the centre-backs, Fabinho versus Rodri or Salah over anybody. The only one I think they can really argue with, they could argue with Robertson, they could argue with Thiago. But even at that, it's still a 6-5 Liverpool split. And the Liverpool players being left out, Bar Henderson, are better than the City players being left out, in my view. So Liverpool should still be able to compete. Now, if they add Haaland, obviously he goes into that team, but it's still a City player coming out. It's Bernardo or Foden. It's not Salah. But City's team then would look something like Ederson, Walker, Diaz, Laporte, Canseo. De Bruyne. De Bruyne. Rodri Gundogan. Bernardo, Haaland, Foden. Something like that. I mean, again, I'm happy enough. Liverpool need a midfielder. We know that anyway. They need to replace Henderson. They need to replace Mane. And that's basically it. You know, Liverpool have some depth that they need to add. City have had more high-class depth than Liverpool, which is why City are ahead of Liverpool right now. But Liverpool's depth has improved. Their front three depth is better than City's. Their midfield depth, they have more midfielders, not the same calibre of midfielders. No. Like Liverpool have three really good midfielders: Fabinho, Thiago, and Naby Keita. But Naby Keita and Thiago, it's one or the other. Klopp rarely he's had. I think the two of them shared the pitch together for like thirty minutes. He wants one or the other. He doesn't want to risk both. It's like the two guys who know the recipe for Coca Cola. They're never allowed to be in the same place at the same time. That's it. That's who they are. So they've got to buy that right sided midfielder as a starter. They've got to get some depth behind Fabinho. Replacement for Mane. Back or right back. That's basically it. As long as they do those things, like if they went and sold Mane and bought in Kunku, that's massive. If they could bring in Bellingham or Choumeny, that would be huge. Or even a Rafinha type and go quite attack-minded in midfield or Paqueta, someone like that. That would be huge. And then, you know, back up right back, like a Jed Spence or whoever. But I don't think Liverpool would need to do anything drastic because, look, the bottom line is City are still going to beat all the bad teams. They beat them anyway. So the only games, like Liverpool and City are neck and neck when both sides are whole. They have been. The last two years, both sides had basically everybody. City have been two points better off. One this season and one in uh, the 18-19 season. Liverpool won the Champions League that 18-19 season. Liverpool could well win the Champions League this season. They could well overhaul City this season in the league. So there's nothing really to choose between the teams when both sides are whole. I don't think Haaland swings the deck massively for Liverpool, for for City, against anybody because all the rest are still going to be looking up at City as they are now and Liverpool just need to focus on themselves and when it comes to playing City, have a plan to deal with Haaland. And that's basically it. And like I know City fans will say, oh, but if we had Haaland... We would have beaten Southampton and we would have beaten Palace and whatever. We would have beaten uh, Spurs. Grand. If Liverpool had had Nkunku and Bellingham, who are realistic targets for the next two summers for Liverpool, well, they would have beaten Leicester and they would have beaten West Ham and they would have beaten Brentford and they would have beaten Brighton and they would have beaten City and they would have beaten Chelsea. Twice. So, you know, you can, you just make those improvements yourself. And I don't think they need to worry about what it is that City are doing. Uh, Last question of the day. Uh, It's St. Patrick's Day. It is indeed. Can you do an 11 of the best Irish players to have played in the Premier League? I can indeed. I've actually, I saw this one come in, so I've written it out. It's a bit defensive, but we've had more good defenders than strikers. And I can't put Shane Long in. Uh, Shea Given is your goalkeeper. As good as a Cueven Keller is, it's Shea Given. The back three is not great. One of them is incredible. The other two, yeah. John O'Shea on the right of the back three. He had a very good career. He wasn't a great player, but he was a consistent six and a half, seven out of ten. He never really let you down. I'll take John O'Shea. He'd be a good player to have in your squad. As a f- fifth centre-back who can play both full-back spots in the midfield, he's fine. Uh, Steve Staunton. More of a left-back than a centre-back through his career, but did play left side of a three a bunch. Uh, and I'm happy enough to have Stan in there. Paul McGrath in the middle. One of the very best centre-backs the world has ever seen. I've gone for Steve Finnan at right-back, a right-wing-back as it is, and Dennis Irwin at left-wing-back. Dennis Irwin, to me, the best left-back the Premier League has seen. Maybe the best full-back the Premier League has seen. Steve Finnan, consistent seven out of ten. Four across the midfield. I've got Seamus Coleman as a right winger in front of Finn, and just lots of hard work and graft, and a decent bit of quality on the ball. Damien Duff on the left, happy with that. Duff will hold the width. Irwin can come in field. I'm happy with that. Midfield too. Jason McAteer. Um, I, I've look. He's a bit of a he's a bit of a dumbass, but he's a nice guy, and he was a good player. He's an underrated player. Uh, box to box, lots of energy. Decent on the ball. Uh, not a bit of fear in the guy. I'll happily take Jason McAteer. And next to him, Roy Keane. For me, the best midfielder of the Premier League era. And then up front, I've got Robbie Keane. Uh, Robbie Keane's the best Irish striker ever. So I'll go with him. So I've got Given, O'Shea, McGrath, Staunton, Irwin, and Keane, McAteer, Coleman, Duff and Keane up front. I believe three of them... McGrath, Keane, and Irwin are among the best the Premier League has ever seen. I believe all three to be among the best the game has seen in their respective positions. Duff was a borderline world class winger at Chelsea. Keane was borderline world class at Spurs. Finnan, Coleman, McAteer, lads that, and O'Shea, lads that never let you down. Staunton, versatile, bit of leadership as well. You got that with McGrath, you get it with Keane. Keane is obviously the captain of the team. Uh, And as long as I don't have any shots played in uh, above head height, Shea Given is fine. So that's my team there. And I will quickly wrap up with the gossip and then we are done for the day. Borussia Dortmund advisor Matthias Sammer has hinted that Erling Haaland will leave the club to join Man City. Um... I haven't seen that. Haaland has been linked to Real Madrid, but will have to reduce his salary demands. I don't think he will, considering what they're offering to Mbappe. Clubs interested in Haaland will have to meet his release clause by the end of April, according to Build. Strange that's only coming out now. Antonio Rudiger had agreed a contract extension. See, this is lies. This is nonsense. This is. I guarantee if I dug into this, I would find this come from that through, not through idiot on social media, Christian Folk. Um, Now he says that the club's in turmoil and that the deal was scuppered so that clubs might sign him. I don't believe for one second that to be true. If it was true, it would have come out through the British press. Paris Saint-Germain has made contact with Antonio Conte, who has a his contract that allows him to leave Spurs at the end of the season. No, it doesn't. Mikel Arteta is one of the... <laughs> Mikel Arteta, PSG, Jesus, well... Uh, Lionel Messi has no plans to leave PSG. Fair. Uh, Thomas Tuchel and Julian Lopetegi are on United's managerial shortlist. Lopetegi, I forgot to add him. Add him to the list of people who could go to City. He's very, very good. Uh, Tuchel has overtaken PSG's manager, PSG boss Pochettino to be United's number one choice. I don't think so. Arsenal are ready again to attempt to sign Hostam Hour. He'd give them that kind of backup playmaker that they might need. Um, good player, hasn't developed, but lots of talent. Ginny Wijnaldum's preference is a move back to the Premier League. That's been going on for ages. Uh, Robert Lewandowski's agent says there's no discussions with Bayern about extending his contracts. Fair. Uh, they should get that done soon, though. AC Milan have begun talks with Divock Origi about signing as a free. Good signing for them. Good good backup striker to have. West Ham United are interested in Alex Lacazette. That would be a very good signing for West Ham. Angel Di Maria is set to leave PSG with the French club likely, unlikely rather, to pick up his option to stay for an extra year as they look to sign Usman Dembele. Yeah, I suppose it makes sense for them. He is 34 now. He's still a better player than Dembele, but you get 10 years younger. Uh, Inter Milan's directors have met with the agents of Sebastian Haller that'd be a really good signing for Inter Milan. Sebastian Haller would be a really good signing. And Brendan Rogers says that Leicester have opened talks over a new with Kier- Kiernan Dewsbury-Hall. Uh, yeah, deserved. He's been very, very good for them this season. Uh, one of the few bright spots in an otherwise dismal season for Brendan Rogers, who may well be in the last days of his reign of terror at Leicester. And that is it, folks. We will leave it there. Thank you, as always, for listening. I will see you tomorrow. Goodbye. Network.